for Mother Earth. For Mother Earth. Heard around the world. Welcome to the Rock Talk Podcast with your host, Dave Stein. All right, so I'm here with Wendell Barker, and he is a geologist from up north from Alaska, and he will be out here on with us today talking about just a little bit of his career and kind of some, some tips and tricks to get along and some professional development. Um, Wendell, can you want to start off by giving us just a, a quick brief introduction about, you know, just who you are exactly and what your expertise has been? My name is Wendell Barker, and uh, I am uh, the owner of two companies. I'm owner of uh, Mogambi Mountain Mining and Exploration Corporation and also Scientech, both Alaska corporations. And I, uh, I've been mining in the mining industry for over 42 years now, almost 43. And... Uh, I've been doing it since actually before then and uh, School of Agriculture and Mining and Geology and actually Mining Engineering and then uh, out in the bush and and then here I am. <laughs> okay, nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, it sounds like you've got quite the career going so far. So I guess my first question is, what made you want to get into mining and geology? Well, uh, my my whole background, my whole life has been around people. Uh, my grandfather on my mother's side, for an example, was uh, he was, during World War II, he was a phys- physicist, and he was also an uh, electronics engineer. And he worked out in New Mexico uh, during World War II on the projects out there. And then he later on worked with the ICBM guidance systems and such like that. And as I was growing up as a little boy, uh, he would take my brothers and I uh, out to the shop and he would have us sit down at, at his desk and he'd dump little jars of different size screws and everything out and we were to put them in the proper jars and while we were doing that he would be reading to us uh, novels such as uh, Robert Heinlein uh, or you know uh, John Carter of Mars and and uh, then we would well, we would also have time of uh, Torah study you know and uh, we did many things like that together and but always he was inventing something and he was always making fun things for us and showing us how to to make these toys uh, that after I grew up I realized that they didn't do anything but bloop and bleep and light up lights and and that was about the extent of it but you know it was pretty fun and he always inspired all of us um, to go forward and think about things outside the box and and I got into geology and mining and and uh, went mining with the thought in mind that he always told us that in the in the Torah it says when God created the heavens and the earth 
Well, it says in the Torah that God spoke or resonated the world and the elements into existence. And I, I always found that to be really a mystery of, of this particular thing. And, and then I got into the elements and element, uh, you know, valence and, and um, finding out about chlorides and sulfides and all these other things and how they want to bond together and, and how they want to continue uh, growing their structures by their uh, adding more and more and more uh, elements to the, the mess, you might say, and how the heat and, and uh, electricity and sometimes water uh, did quite a bit in the forming of the earth and in the rocks and things around me and I was very interested in that type of thing and and so when I had a chance when I was a young lad to go out in the bush uh, I graduated high school at 15 and I was my friend's uh, dad was a gold miner out in the bush in Alaska I grew up in Fairbanks and and it was funny because I went out there and my parents had no idea of where I was all summer long and we didn't have any or anything in the bush so I stayed out there and that is where I really started looking into the mysteries of how all of this placer mining came about and how to follow the channels and when you find deposits of purple clay or red clay and and, uh, the type of and amount of gold you get in each of these little areas and and finding some some uh, really interesting diorite reefs uh, and dikes that have uh, been exposed by the the uh, alluvial streams and it was very interesting so that's what got me started and then uh, I mined ever since then but uh, in the meantime I wasn't just satisfied with with uh, the basic mining because back then this is a long time ago we had a a 50 foot long tom with 4 inch riffles and cocoa mat made out of coconut husks and and, uh, we just had to uh, block up this dam overnight so that we could run for the day and we you know, had gravity feet on the water and everything else, and it was just a mess. But uh, since then, we've started getting into recirculation and and uh, settling out our settling ponds and and moving forward and advancing in our industries. And and uh, I always remembered my grandfather said resonate, resonating the elements into existence as we know it and so I started working on uh, resonance frequencies as a sideline and that's what uh, got me into the company that I have now Scientech it's it's uh, I have a patenting on this 
uh, machine that uh, actually uses a similar uh, resonance frequency to uh, gold in its uh, and it's a wonderful thing to see it in action because we have one on the cleanup box and you can see the microscopic fine particulates building up right over top of this uh, ultrasonic uh, I call it the gold magnet but it's uh, it sits right on top of it even though the water is washing all the other lighter material that isn't within the range uh, it's I can dial in the range to from uh, gold and platinum and silver and and I've I've uh, captured all of these in the magnet there and, and it uh, uses ultrasonic frequency and uh, underneath of the the uh, little cleanup box and it works similar to a a table except for the table has uh, a lateral uh, movement and my mechanism has a a vertical movement and and it holds the gold in place rather than uh, just you know working it out into the little channels uh, like on the on the tables and uh, I I improved it several times over I've seen what needed to be advanced further and and things that could be uh, taken out and and uh, this this is uh, a process that took me about 15 years to to get to where it's at now and right now I'm I'm in the uh, area of business, you might say, where I need customers. <laughs> yeah, that's at least always a good business to be in. Yeah, it's yeah. very interesting. So you started, you said, back when you were only 15, just started going out yeah. in your first experience out there? Yes. What was that like being uh, such a younger male going out into the wilderness just kind of being out all by yourself out there? Well, there there was a camp, and uh, uh, we had a camp cook, and and uh, the camp cook and her husband was, uh, uh, he was an old cat skinner, and uh, he had worked on the big gold dredges there around Fairbanks, and he kind of took us under his wing and showed us the variations of a theme on how to operate the equipment and what to look for when we're when we're uh, out there. And he had been since he was a young lad, he had been out in the bush in Alaska and working. And and uh, it was quite exciting because we uh, we were allowed to, you know. I, as a matter of fact, my first bulldozer out there was an old uh, Caterpillar 2U, which is about the size of a D8, and it said D8 on the side, but it was actually smaller than the modern D8s, but it had a gasoline starting motor, and then you start that up and pull these different levers and start the diesel engine up, 
there was no turbine on the diesel engine. All it was was just compression. And you had a cable going through a tube, and you pull this lever and pull that lever. And, and I weighed oh, about 120 pounds. By the end of the summer, I, I went up to about 150 pounds muscle. And uh, it was it was quite interesting, but uh, that was where I got started in. And I really have not stopped in, in this business. Uh, I've mined in Central America, South America, and Alaska, and I've been all over Canada and places, but I've always come back to Alaska. Oh, we're excited. Now, just for like, everybody else who doesn't know, what exactly is the bush? Give them a quick description if you could. Well, uh, when I was young, we had a modern house that was, had electricity, it had heat and everything else, but I could get on my snow machine and ride about two miles and be in the bush. Uh, the bush is... Uh, you might say it's anywhere where there aren't many roads or there's not modern conveniences such like that or anything off-road. Uh, Alaska, there's quite a bit of wilderness, and the bush is your closest neighbor uh, may weigh about 800 pounds and have size 13 feet. <laughs> and, <laughs> And teeth, and he might uh, have a penchant for, for fresh meat. I don't know. Uh, there's also moose and caribou and, and fox, but my mother had a moose in our backyard, and she'd go out there in the wintertime and pet it and sometimes give it carrots. But <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was uh, quite the experience growing up, and... And then uh, the bush nowadays uh, still means the same thing. It's anything that's off-road. You can be on a paved highway in Alaska and walk 20 feet off to the side there. You'll still hear the noise, but you'll see fox and moose and caribou and everything. It's the wilderness, and good thing there's no snakes. But uh, Other than that, it's... It's uh, quite peaceful. What would you say is your most exciting or crazy experience that you had while you were out there on one of your adventures? Well, I'd say the craziest time I had ever had was uh, actually with my brother, my middle brother, and we were down fishing, and uh, I told my brother, I said that, uh, the, the creek, actually, it's a river, but you know, the river was in a little bit of a flood stage, and and you could see the swells. And I said, there's a moose over there across the river. And, and he looks up from his fishing, and no, there's not. And, and then I said, there's a, there's a calf over there. And he says, no, there's not. And uh, just within a few minutes, here comes Mama and the calf, not 10 feet from my brother, and she shakes all the water off on us, and we turn around, there she is, and my brother goes, ah! And so we were, we went back up to our parents, and 
and uh, I, he grabs his camera, and I come running back down with my my pistol, and I wasn't going to shoot the moose, but I just didn't want, I wanted to shoot into the ground and scare the moose off, and, and I come walking around the, the willows there, and, and I saw the moose nose to nose, and I screamed, and she turned the other way. Well, my brother was out there in the little clearing, and he was taking pictures of the moose and the calf. And the last picture he got was of the, the moose's belly. Oh, wow. And Dover, and that was pretty fun. I have to say that was one fun ex- example, but a lot of times uh, the most amazing experiences have been when I've been mining and uh, working a particular cut in the in the, in the uh, cut we're seeing different layers as they layer out and then um, panning it and putting it through the sluice box and then having a cleanup and finding a five ounce nugget that's uh, excitement uh, I can imagine so what was the biggest find that you have ever found while you're out there or what was your best season uh the best find was the five ounce nugget but uh in that particular season uh it was the summer before my son was born and that was 1800 ounces in four weeks Wow. Okay. And, and how that, long does right. the season typically last for you guys out there? Well, uh, for one example, four years ago uh, in April, because they had so many volcanoes blast off and they burped, they weren't really a big volcanic problem, but uh, they, it was like 16 of them burped at the same time and in April fifth it was 85 degrees in Fairbanks and that's not typical year but uh, we normally get started in uh, that time repairing equipment getting stuff ready to go and and, uh, then it starts we start solution around May middle of May, sometimes the 5th or 6th of May. It all depends. But And then we go to freeze up, and that's sometimes in uh, October. This last year, we had a freeze up for just a few short days, and then there was an uh, Indian summer, if you will, and it warmed up quite a bit. And, and uh, it, it's been a nice winter. Uh, when Kansas was getting all the Arctic air. <laughs> okay. And um, I guess a lot of people, you know, have seen these uh, these gold rush, gold mining shows now that are all popular on, like, the History Channel and stuff like that. And um, I know a lot of people, when I asked them that I was going to talk to you, they, one of the questions they, they continuously asked me was, is gold mining still really a thing these days? And so I'm just curious on your takes on that. Now, I myself have 
understand, you know, like there's still a huge market, especially with all the mines around the world that are producing. But I just would like to hear the perspective of somebody who's actively working in the industry on what they would say to that question. Well, actually, it's kind of funny. Uh, back in, uh, I would say, back in the early 80s, 84, 85, they, the government came out with all of these regulations and all these permitting and everything else. And, and back then, uh, in the district where I was working, uh, there was uh, probably... 1,800 miners in the area, and there was probably about 700 mining companies active before all the government regulations, and then when they started coming out, they started really hammering people with all these regulations, and then once people started realizing that uh, the regulations were easy enough to get passed, if you understood the the uh, permitting system and some of the stupidest permits actually went by the wayside they were kind of uh, like the clean water act and all this other stuff because we we had back in the day like i said we'd use gravity feed and and just flushing all of our tailings out and push our tailings up into a pile, but we didn't have any settling ponds or anything. And uh, I have another device that not only is the gold magnet, but I have a, a device that I'm uh, promoting more in the mining industry that will help more miners is uh, because, you know, in plaster mining, the cleaner the water, the more gold you actually capture. And so if you can settle your settling pond out, quicker. Some people have four from settling ponds before the recirculation pond. And if you can settle it out quite quickly, then you're able to uh, move about and, and use clean water. So I have this machine that uses the vibrations and it sits in a, a uh, inner tube, if you will, and it sits there and vibrates the water and settles out all the solids and with uh, ultrasonic vibrations. But anyway, we're, we're, uh, more and more miners are actually starting to come back, the um, small miners, mom-and-pop miners, and that's where I got my start at. And I, uh, we're also seeing a lot of the big miners coming in, but there are quite a few mining companies, you know, four or five guys or actually families sometimes, husband and wife, uh, I knew several of them and uh, they they mine by themselves and they they do pretty good and uh, there's a lot more information out there the uh, university extension has uh, placer mining uh, groups that uh, you can get with and they'll put you with a mentor or, and the mentor will lead you into uh, what plaster mining is all about, and, and it's. Uh, I know some of the gold miners on uh, the mining show, and uh, Tony Beats in Canada for one. Uh, he's actually a gold miner, and he's pretty sharp at it. And 
Parker, he's pretty sharp. And, and But Todd Hoffman, the earlier gold rush, he wasn't that sharp. And so he did what he knew best. He went back to singing, I guess. And so. so how long did it take you to come up with your um, device, the ultrasonic device, to capture the gold? And then also what got you thinking about how to utilize that type of technology for the settlement ponds? Well, uh, when you think about uh, a little conversation that we had off um, a couple days back where we were talking about some some of our lightning strikes and everything else and, and uh, some of my papers that I had done earlier in my life uh, were concerning the lightning goes through the ground, you know, and then it bolts up through this to the sky. You have air to air, ground to air, and then you have below lightning. Well, the lightning has to have a positive and a negative no matter what it does. And we know that because of certain chemicals, like I said before, uh, sulfides and chlorides, for example, they tend to grab onto other things sodium chloride, you know, and, and uh, we have potassium chloride. Those things grab hold, and the electrical discharges through the earth as they're traveling along, they uh, uh, contribute to all the other factors, the heat from the, uh, you know, the magma chambers and everything that we're looking at, and they, they help move along uh, the currents and they settle other things out and uh, when you when you see the static when you're taking off uh, frozen muck for example there's static in your hair when you get up there and you're in the midst of all that you'll notice that your hair kind of stands on end like like in a Tesla coil type of situation you know? and uh, it it has a sine wave and everything has a sine or a sine wave to it. And as you put the mechanism down in the inner tube and you turn it on, that sine wave has has a sine length. The length of it is uh, one meter long at certain frequencies. So that frequency doesn't just stop at the end of that one meter. It continues on until the edge of the settling pond and as it's going about it creates a uh, positive uh, wave you might say that the way the oxygenation of the uh, particulates that are in the water and you'll see little bubbles on top of the water and that's just oxygen going out and and as the material is flowing through the sluice box it picks up air as it you know goes over top of each ripple and it whips it up and it foams it up and then as it comes out into the settling pond it each little particulate releases its uh, when it hits that wave it hits that wave and it drops off its oxygen molecules and and away it goes it starts going back to the bottom and I okay. hope that was it's clear as mud. 
yeah. No, I mean, it sounds very interesting. It sounds like you ended up coming up with something that's pretty great. And I know in one of our prior discussions, you had mentioned that it could be potentially utilized to end up helping clean stuff out of the water as well, possibly. Yes, uh, I, there, I have other uh, other things that I've been working on over the years. Uh, pollutants, for example. Uh, one of the pollutants that is very bad and very bad for the environment and everything else is a pollutant called PCB, polychlorinated uh, butyl. In a butyl, you have a carbon atom with four valence, external, two internal, and and it picks up uh, hydrogen molecules, and they have uh, a co combination there where they join together, but they always join together in the butyl uh, four on the side of a carbon molecule. And then you have the butyl there and that it can be excited to the point with uh, pressure and and stimulation. And uh, one of the main things about the ultrasonic depending on the frequency, you can have up to 17,000 PSI of cavitation, you know, and that is quite a bit of cavitation. If you could get it all in one one cavitating bubble, one uh, cubic inch there, you could probably crush my car. Wow. And uh, it would... It creates enough pressure in in the matrix, and the matrix would be the water, uh, or you know you could have other factors in there. But let's say you have a a bay that has PCBs on the bottom of the bay down there. You send down a suction dredge type of deal, and it starts suctioning with, with a little uh, rover type of underwater device, and it goes over there so that you don't have to have a diver near the the pollutants, but you can go back and forth and suck up the little puddles of this PCBs because they have a tendency to drop down into the the bottom of the water and, and such. And you suck them up, and as they're going through there, you're getting a little bit of salt water as well. So you already have sodium chloride in the salt water of the bay, and... You have polychlorinated uh, butyls. You want some of those, uh, the chlorine or the chlorinated portion to jump over onto that salt because you don't want it to be attached to the carbon molecule, but you want it to be attached to the sodium and the sodium chloride molecules so that you can extract the the bad things, so to speak, and then at the same time, you're imploding so much of that carbon that you're releasing the the hydrogen molecules that are all around it, and it starts uh, taking it and making it into a hydrogen gas, so to speak, and then you can take that through the system, and then you pump that back down into the seawater, whereas you've caught all of the carbon itself and you've you've uh, it 
you know, butyl is just a hydrocarbon. But anyway, you take it and you separate each little piece there, and then at, at the end of each reactant, you have a different stage where each of these uh, structures are taken apart and placed in another area, a holding area, until they can be completely cleaned up to the point of being, you might have uh, a degasser and you might take out the chlorine in the, in the essence of being a chlorine bleach, for example. And you would have a lot of chlorine uh, there and you would have other areas where you would have hydrogen gas accumulators and just various things. And, and But at least you'd be taking apart these pollutants and because in in their individual uh, elemental forms they're they're kind of everywhere in the earth but they don't cause as much damage to to humans and animals as as they do in the PCB state very interesting I like that you're kind of, you know, trying to clean it up. I've done a little bit of some environmental remediation myself and worked with some PCBs and some PCEs and stuff, and I know that those are always never that fun to clean up, so it's kind of cool that you've kind of created somewhat of a way to neutralize them and collect them. Yeah. Uh, do you see that this technology being able to be utilized in any other way in the future? Are you working on any new projects with this, or are you sort of kind of just trying to take this product to where it goes and, and start to allow everybody to, to be able to utilize that technology well, clean. Like any technology, uh, you have to have a market for your primary technology. And, for example, my primary technology right now is gold recovery units, actually metal recovery units, like I said, platinum, silver, you know, the platinum groups, uh, worked with some uh, other items like that, but uh, that is the main function right now. And then when you get money flowing and then you can have a little bit of research and development money, you can go a little further with each thing. And and nothing is ever a finished product in the sense that if there's something else you can think of, you can always accomplish it somehow. And uh, that's what I work on is there's so many things out there that are undiscovered. Who would have thought that I would be talking on a smartphone when I remember as a child only having four digits on our phone and a rotary phone and you digit four digits and uh, we didn't have very many people in town and I could walk to school 10 miles in a snowstorm both ways uphill, you know, that kind of thing. But nowadays we have smartphones and no more of those antiquated phones. That, and, uh, so things are not just static. Life is dynamic, and so we'll always find something to go further with. It might even come to be that we might use... The ultrasonic, they have ultrasonics for communications, for an example. We have ultrasonics 
put pressure testing on jet engines. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, uses for everything. It's, uh, they even tried ultrasonics on fusion generation of electricity. And, and uh, so there's a lot out there that still hasn't been discovered yet. Okay, nice. That's a very good point. I like that. So let's get into a little bit more of while you're working here. Um, like when you go out to, say, the bush or to go do some gold mining if you're in Central America or South America or Canada, um, uh, typically how many hours would you say you would work during a given week? Everybody looks on those gold mining shows and it always looks like tough work. Does that end up actually being the case? Uh, well... Besides uh, having my own company, I also work for another company. Uh, I won't mention their name, but uh, I work typically 70 hours during a six-day work week. Uh, we don't work on Sundays, and I, and I go into town and do my laundry and grocery shopping and such like that, and, and uh, have a day off, and, and uh, I work 70 hours a week. 11 hours a day uh, for the basic day in the in the mining industry, and then I uh, spend about a half hour, sometimes an hour, doing paperwork and and uh, you know fuel and preparation for the other crew to get there, and so that they can just start off and, and do their job. And uh, what would you say that lead- you enjoy? Oops, sorry. Go ahead. I'm the lead man. Okay. So, yeah, you've been doing that for about 42, 43 years, you said? Yeah. Very nice. And what would you say that you enjoy most about your work? The mystery. The mystery. You never know what you're going to find. Oh, you never know what you're going to find. You never know what the the next day holds. Uh, You might, uh, I've come across old diggings and found old bottles. And and after watching what the old timers did in their drifts, uh, able to find out that, hey, over here's a hot spot. And these guys really, they put in a lot of physical labor. And so they weren't going to waste their labor on just, taking the whole creek out they they focus on one one spot so we focus on those spots as well but the mysteries are are every day it's a different challenge every day and and uh gold mining has always been a mystery to me because of of seeing how many people have ideas uh, as to the helical layout uh when i talk to people that aren't familiar with gold mining, I tell them, do you realize that gold goes uphill? And they all, no, 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 it's heavy, it's so heavy, it's always going downhill. But if you think about it, that's why we have sluice boxes with ripples, is because the gold comes over in the vortex and goes up underneath of that riffle and it goes uphill under that riffle. And it stays there. Uh, so that's just one way of thinking about it. But finding the gold and, 
and what it does is always a mystery as well. Every time you take a pan, I'm, I'm finding other things like beautiful dodecahedral garnets and and um, many other little things, little pieces of cassiterite, ilmenite. Uh, I just follow the whole pan, and I pick out the rocks as I'm panning, but, but I also have to make sure it goes through the recovery plant. Now, what would you find most challenging about your work, and why would that be the most challenging? Well, um... The most challenging about my work is I can't be in two places at once. I'm in the cut and I'm following the channel of the of the cut, but we also have to haul the material to the uh, recovery plant. And the recovery plant sometimes is a half a mile away or so, and I can't be in both places at the same time. I can't see how well the plant is working, so I have to rely on uh, my operators to to uh, maintain everything in that area. And so I just have to accept that it is a challenge, but uh, the challenge is, is I've trained them well enough that they know exactly what's expected. And, and as I'm doing that, I'm explain to them uh, other factors that I'm doing so that they can see when we need more water and when we don't, you know, and, and such like that. And, and, uh, but my, uh, what changes do I think would, I would make to make it less challenging? Being in both places at one time. <laughs> So speaking about you know your your employees and your staff, the guys that you have to train up, what do you usually look for in a in a young professional when you're considering them to come to work for you? Well, uh, most of the young professionals that are, well, for example, a lot of the the uh, geology and the uh, engineering uh, students that are coming out of the university up there. Uh, they're they're looking for jobs, and most of those young professionals go to like the Fort Knox Gold Mine, which is just about 15 miles out of Fairbanks, and they go there and, and do uh, their in between uh, semester work out there, so that they can get there first. So a lot of our young professionals are are in the business, but they're always seem to be going, gravitating more towards the big mining corporations uh, rather than the small ones, but there are a few that come out there. And I look for somebody that's willing. If they're willing to sweep the floor or if they're willing to uh, shovel a, a little bit of dirt out from underneath the recovery plant, uh, Anything that they're willing to do, if they're if they have a good work ethic, uh, that's what I'm looking for. So, what is one of the most influential impacts on you during your career, or who had? Sorry, I apologize. Who had the most influential impact on you? Uh, it, the person that had the most influential impact on my career 
like I said, my grandfather had the greatest influential impact on my choice of of uh, career, uh, as I said before. But during my career, my influential impact would have, have to be a former partner. And uh, he was more influential. He had a temper. He was uh, agitated. He didn't want any help doing anything, uh, and he would try it and try it and try it until he'd just get flustered and start throwing tools. And then he would come over to me and he'd say, okay, it's your turn. And I would go over there and, you know, most of the time he'd have it pretty close and I would just be the one that put it uh, in place and... I had longer arms or, you know, more dexterous fingering, fingering of the, the nuts and bolts or whatever. And, and uh, But outside of uh, that, yelling and screaming, he always re- reminded me that he was yelling and screaming at the air and not me and that uh, I was doing a good job. Kind of the Pavlovian theory, you might say. What was the biggest lesson or the greatest lesson that you took away from him? From Was it just to, no matter what happens, to end up, you know, be kind to everyone around you? Or what would you say was the biggest lesson? Uh, the biggest lesson I learned from uh, him was that he was always interested in what I thought about any situation we were in. What do you think? And that, to me, was I need to uh, promote that idea to with everybody that I have any dealings with as as their superior or supervisor or whatever. And I think that that is the biggest thing that I came away with is that he was always interested in what I thought. And most of the time we implemented it. Uh, like I said, he, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, it didn't bother him at all. Didn't make him feel any lesser of a human being or anything else. If he asked me and some people won't ask because they believe that if you, have something that they don't have, it will uh, be a bad mark on their their life or something like that. I don't know. Let's, I try to always treat people fairly, and, and he, that was the thing that he did, was he treated me fairly. I like that. It's a very, very good takeaway. Now, let's pretend you're back here it's your first day entering the workforce again. Pretend you know you're going all the way back to fifteen, sixteen. What is something uh-huh. that you would tell yourself now that you wish you had learned or you wish you had known back in your first day? Uh, if I had known certain things, I would tell myself, okay, if I went back in a time machine and I could, or I could leave a note to myself back then, I would just have to say, take 
the plumber's advice. The plumber, he tells you, everything coming down the sewer goes downhill, and don't chew your fingernails. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mean, so tell me about what you believe was a failure and sort of how that impacted your progress moving forward. Uh, I think that failure would actually be not moving forward. And uh, I have had little setbacks here and there. Uh, for an example, uh, my life, equipment breaking down and and you need this and this and this to happen with that particular piece of equipment and and it broke down so you have to stop and fix it. It's been a setback, but if you just stopped and didn't start it again or didn't repair it, you would that would be a failure. And I don't think I've failed at anything in my life. I've slowed down a few times and and other times I've stopped for a moment but I started back up again. Oh, I like that. It's very good. So now speaking of failures on the opposite spectrum, what was your favorite moment where you had just professional success in the industry? What would have been your favorite moment? Was it the five ounce nugget? Was there something more? Was it creating your, your patent for your device? Uh, I think the biggest moment with me is uh, the moment that I had the idea to start working on the device. And sometimes uh, something happens that causes you, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. I wonder who the father was. Uh, you know, that that's the kind of thing that you think of when, when you say, this uh, idea in my mind comes from the need to catch the smaller particulates of wood. For an example, uh, a, a duplex jig, mm, you capture gold down to a certain size, but then you go scoop up a bunch of your material that come out the other end and you realize that if you, you know, do certain testing like aquaregia or this and that and the other, you find out that there's still quite a bit of gold that went past all of your best efforts. And like I said, the mining industry is not regulated by the government. The mining industry is regulated by the owner who looks at the bottom line. And when we look at the bottom line and we say, well, I need another jig on the end of that jig, or I need uh, a table out there off coming off the end of the jig. And, and you're slowing your processes down, so you're not capturing as much of the initial material through, and, and so your flow is slowed down and so therefore, the amount of volume of material slow down. Your gold is less because you don't have as much material and, and, and so on. And the moment that I thought, why slow the material down? Hey, you run it through, 
pardon this 15-second interruption. As we know, humans are tainting the water, and the technology we use to produce GeoWonk's Rock Talk podcast has had a moment of interruption. Now back to the show. What do you find that drives you during your particularly long days and harsh work schedule? Like, What makes everything at the end of the day worth it for you? I think that uh, happens during any day. Some days are longer than others. Uh, they seem to be, but it's still the same amount of time. But things that drive me forward when time seems to be slipping away is that uh, when I'm in the equipment, singing, you would never hear me singing, but I sing. And uh, I'm a rock and roller. That's what I do. All right. Now, let's say that you saw an unsafe activity going on during by one of your crews. Um, what is one thing that you've witnessed, and what did you do about the situation? Um. In my position, when I see anybody doing something in an in a unsafe manner, I go back over and I talk to them uh, and explain to them what they're doing wrong, but what they're doing right as well. I expound on the positives. Positive is positively reinforced uh, by, by telling them you're doing a good job, but this is a safe practice in this way, so let's think about doing it properly. And I find that uh, speaking mano a mano, if you will, uh, works better when you have a no emotional context with it, not condemning somebody for doing something that's wrong, but you're explaining to them uh, that this would be a better way of doing it, it would be less dangerous. And I think that that works. I like that. I can agree with that. That sounds like the way... I would handle my business as well. Now, what do you feel is one of the most important professional attributes? Like, Which attribute of somebody do you, you strive them to bring to work with them every single day? And what is one habit that you think everybody should be practicing from day one in their career to retirement? I think uh, from day one in their career... Everybody should think about what can I do to benefit the company and benefit my fellow team members? Because if we come to work and we don't benefit the company, then we really don't benefit anybody else because somebody's got to go if the bottom line says that 
uh, you know, we're, we're not seeing enough production and we're not seeing enough um, application of skills. We're seeing uh, problems arise in that area. Then we have to talk to those people and, and promote coming to work every day with a smile, coming to work knowing that everybody else out there might have had a bad night, uh, they might have had a grizzly bear encounter. You know, there's so many things that uh, can make for a person's day. And if I can be part of smiling when I see them come to work, and smiles are infectious, you know, um, and talk to people man to man if if uh, they happen to be a man or a woman you know, man to woman but you talk to them as though they are sentient beings and that they are capable of performing their duties now if somebody was just starting out their career what would you tell them to avoid doing I would tell them to avoid uh, <clears throat> if you can learn from someone else's mistake, that's the best avoidance that you can have. And if someone else is saying, I did that one time and the result for this and this then I think you've helped them along quite a bit. But something that I would tell them to do is be early and be there. And when they're early and they're there, they're not elsewhere in their mind, they're not thinking about the girlfriend that they saw last night or whatever, they're thinking about the work, then things go a lot better. Their focus is going to tell them to, to do. I like that answer. Now, about you have you said you have two companies that you do and you have one that you work for. So you can pick, you know, which one of these you'd like to kind of use for this answer. But when it comes to the perception of the company you work for or one of your companies, what are what is one of the things that you're most proud of? One of the things I'm most proud of is uh, interaction with others, no matter whether it's the company I'm currently working for or, or my own company. Uh, customer service is key, and employee uh, interaction is another. I think that when we stop treating everybody as something that would bring money to me and start treating them as they didn't, you know, they didn't uh, just happen to ask a question to me uh, and expect some strange answer. They ask a question expecting a good answer. So if we treat everybody... Uh, with respect and show them 
uh, how we perceive things or our ideas and if they mention an idea we don't cut them down for their ideas because everybody has ideas some some ideas and ideologies you might say uh, or maybe different from yours but when we show them that we're still listening uh, even though they're different than us then then they start building a rapport with you and whether they're a customer or whether they're an employee it it matters not they're they're still finding that they're being respected as a human being so what is your favorite part about geology and just kind of studying the earth what would you say is just the most the most fascinating or most interesting part that you wish you could spend more time studying? Well, um, you may have noticed that I got today's uh, question wrong, but yet I have seen the same sheen that that particular lock that we were discussing earlier today uh, and going through the testing and it had uh, titanium on the outside of the, the it, it was the titanium ore that we'd found. And uh, I think that not having the right answer sometimes makes me think more that some things are more similar than what we what we see at first glance. Everything we see in minerals for example, when when I find a garnet, a dodecahedral garnet, and I'm, I'm seeing it, and then I see another piece that looks very much similar to it, but it's not even a garnet. And I, yeah, that makes me wonder, well, did they come from the same uh, area in our cut? Did they, you know, there's variations of the theme. It makes you wonder about deeper down into the earth where they came from and, and what it's like down below. And so that's when we usually start drilling. And and like I said before, it's the mystery. You never know some things. It's a garnet. Sometimes it's not. I can agree with that. There's lots of lots of cool rocks and everything out there and yeah there's a lot of things where I see it and I'm like oh this is what it is but you know everything yeah. in geology is not as it kind of seems and I think that's one of the things that I actually really enjoy about it as well now <coughs> how does your, your wife and your family take when you go off to go mining say for five months out of the year is that is that tough on them? Is that strenuous for you guys? Or have you guys just worked out such a good system now, you know, it, it just kind of goes like clockwork? Well, uh, back in the day, back a long time ago, uh, my my family came with me out to the mine. We stayed out at the mine. That was no big to do. And and uh, my my son used to love to sit up on the bulldozer with me and, and on like the little 550 John Deere and not the big D9, but 
he'd love to sit up there and we're we're gold miners or he would love to go over and pan with me and and when we had cleanups he would love to be there to look through the dirt and we'd find uh, little pieces of clear crystals and and uh, we would put them in a jar and we had a lot of fun and and now uh my wife and I were empty nesters and and uh she goes and visits the grandchildren and I go to work and then she meets me halfway through the season and and we have a, our time together for a while and then she has to come back and do business and stuff down here uh, away from the mine and and uh, so we we're not a, apart that long and it seems to go better and then nowadays with the availability of being able to drive four or five miles up to the top of the hill where I'm in cell range it's not so bad because I can talk to her in the evening and uh, the hardest part is actually the dogs <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that so how many kids do you have? Uh, well, she has uh, two, and I have one, and and uh, uh, we have. Do you, do you ever pass down your your gold mining knowledge? I feel like, you know, you seem like a quite an interesting man, and you got a lot of cool stories. I'm sure that your children are lucky and are able to to get some of this knowledge firsthand. Is that something that they are interested in learning now as they've gotten older, or have they taken more of a different path in life? Well, uh, for the most part, uh, uh, hair grooming for the girls, and and, uh, the boys have taken up other professions, but even in their professions, they... Uh, like, for example, uh, my profession isn't the same as my father's. My my father was in the Texas Businessmen's Magazine 10 years in a row uh, as being one of the top 10 uh, businessmen in Texas. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he was in that, and he worked all the way up until two months before he passed away and he passed away at 90 and uh, he was still working and he was doing it more so than I do Uh, he had a computer and he would have his pajamas on and a a white shirt and a tie and he would sit down in front of that camera he worked from home after that and and he'd still be telling everybody what to do and amazing man do you see yourself kind of taking the same path where you're going to just be working until the until the time has come, or do you have some retirement plans here where you plan to, to take off and, and just go enjoy life without work? Um, all of my brothers do the same thing. They, they're retired, but they're not retired. Uh, they both went back to work doing various things. <laughs> and... Uh, they're they're not retiring and they have more time to do other things with their grandchildren and such like that. But uh, I I think that I'm gonna 
life is a mystery and and I like to delve into the mystery of it and, and I think I might slow down somewhat uh, I've been thinking about uh, doing some other work with some other companies and with my exploration and everything else I've thought about uh, going out for you know some of the bigger corporations and doing some of their exploration um, during the year and making it to where I could be closer to my wife at night, you know. And, but still, all in all, I, I think I'll, I'll work until I can't. Now, have you ever considered and just switching up career paths totally? Or what about maybe treasure hunting? Have you ever thought about maybe taking a summer and kind of just going out and, and doing something fun like that? Oh, I have done that uh, in my life already and uh i we have a a dear dear friend that uh my son and i we'd go out to arizona and we'd go out to the gold bar mine out in arizona some uh, friends of mine own it and we'd go out there and we'd take him uh, the family friends from germany and uh the longest dirt road he had ever seen in his life. And uh, we got pictures of that, and we, we dug around out there and got found gold, and and we had a wonderful time in the adventure as far as just taking the time to do it. And, and uh, I enjoyed that, but uh, I think as I get older, I'm going to spend more and more time in, like I said, trying to get the... Uh, and ultrasonics into more applications and and uh, working with the pollutants and such and and uh, also getting more and more people involved in it because I believe that if you can uh, some of the mining I've done in my life has been I was the fifth batch of miners that worked that ground the very same ground. They started out in the 1902, and, and then in 1910 they came back, and 1927 they came back, 1948, and then 54, and then it was us. And, you know, and it was quite exhilarating to actually find out that they left a bunch, and then as it it glaciates in the wintertime. The streams uh, break up, you know, and pull more material down from the from the source. And you're always going to find gold there. But I think if we can get into more where we're capturing the finer and finer particulates of gold, uh, one of the things that my machine has done, and uh, I had some gold or some samples that needed to be processed to show these people. And I told them, I said, there's this particular show going to be on about the ultrasonic uh, dental cleaners, cleaning devices. And one of the men that I worked with in the ultrasonic company that makes the product for me, uh, he was going to be there. So I told him, take your samples to him. So I took these samples that are very, very rich in ore, 
that the gold was so much that um, probably in a handful of rocks, there was probably a half a gram easy in just a handful. And they're producing, you know, quite a bit of gold per ton, but they they couldn't break up the rock sufficiently enough to not use cyanide and other things. And they wanted to do something green, so I told him to take them there. Um, he put it in the shot glass. He poured water into the shot glass, or the, you know, a, a rocks glass, and he put the rocks in the rocks glass, and he stuck that inside of the ultrasonic dental cleaner that runs one of the same frequency ultrasonic uh, technology inside. Within just uh, 15 seconds or so, these locks were crumbled up into mud, and all of the gold was down on the very bottom, and then all of the material as its specific gravity laid it out right up to the top of the glass. But it was just nothing but mud. They were wow. awed by that. That's pretty awesome, actually. Yeah. And that's why I think that you know, there's so many things that we can do with this technology. And 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 I, I want to just keep pushing it to the brink. Uh, and then somebody else can come along after I'm gone and think about other things, maybe mining an asteroid with an ultrasonic battery ram or something. That sounds like something I would be interested in there. Like that one movie where they had to go onto the asteroid and mine through it or put in that bomb. I forget what movie that was from, but... Yeah. So, as a geologist, what is your favorite mineral or rock? Mm. Most of the time, I have to say the one I'm holding in my hand at the moment. <laughs> you know, that's kind of funny. Because, uh, oh, I think uh, my wife and I, we go to the rock shows and the gym shows and such. And we always stop by a booth where they have, oh, look at this. They got a bunch of chalcopyrite. It's so beautiful. It looks like a peacock, you know. And, uh, I've, my, guess, uh, my friend that I told you about earlier that uh, he was my mentor, but he was also my business partner. And, uh, he had a problem on another place where he was mining, and he kept having little tiny uh, little tiny pieces of silver looking material in there and and when he tried to pan it out uh, he wasn't getting anywhere with it and he couldn't separate it only but by hand and you know tweezers and taking this it, it was almost like spindle and but it was silvery bright silver and and uh, he couldn't figure it out and then he took it into the gold buyer and the gold buyer was giving him a dirty gold price and he showed it to me. He said, man, this is terrible. I'm getting a dirty gold price, but I can't get it out of there without taking each piece out. And I said, oh, I, I wouldn't take each piece out. I'd tell him you want all your silver back. And he said, what is that? And I said, well, those little pieces are silvernite. And he said, what? And I said, you know, uh, remember when we were looking at Electrum up there at this other friend's? Yeah, well, this is a little bit more on the silver side, and and so we're not seeing the yellow. We're seeing the silver, but it's 50-50, you know, and just tell them you want your silver back. 
And after that, he, the gold buyer started, uh, you know, just chomping at the bit with him. And he said, no, I want my, all my silver back. And and he uh, he got bars of silver back. And uh, he got a good, good, clean price on the total assay. And it was clean gold from that point on. That's pretty good. Yeah. So this will probably be our last question here, Wendell, but I'd like to just ask you a, a financial one on the send-off here. If you could invest in one thing and there is something that you would think is a good idea for others to invest in, what would you what would you choose? Uh, multiple choice or... <laughs> Sure. Yeah. What would your What would your top three things be, or anything that you're sort of keeping your eye on that you should that you think other people should be watching? Like, is it you know the new CBD industry and with all this hemp stuff that's going on, or is there something you know gold related or a metal that you think might be coming up, like some REE, some of the rare earth elements, or or just what would you say? What would you suggest for people to kind of keep their eye on and watch? Maybe 3D printing. You know, it could be could be anything from anything. Just something that maybe you've been paying a little bit more attention to, kind of trying to figure out when it's going to really make its break, and and you think it has a decent potential to. Well, uh, I would say the uh, w- one of them would be hemp projects because I believe that uh, we we have so many people are talking about uh, oil-based plastics and this and that and the other. I find that hemp has so much oil per acre uh, that's amazing how much oil per acre uh, the hemp plants can come up with, but also the fibers in the plant itself and making clothing and and such like that and the CBD oil, but also uh, making uh, plastics uh, where we could have milk cartons that would disintegrate in the sunlight uh, and would turn into basically fertilizer for the next crops that they come along. Might be wildflowers, you never can tell. And and uh, such like that, and I think that, that hemp-based uh, agriculture and such like that, I, I'd like to see people investing in that for sure uh, because there's so much that could be made out of it, uh, from it. and. We don't have enough people investigating it uh, because for so long it was illegal, but uh, George Washington grew hemp, you know, and uh, they make fibers out of it for ropes for ships and this and that and the other. And and that, and uh, also, I'm not a tree hugger and environmentalist, but I am concerned about... uh, things that just go awry when people have a complete disdain for the environment. Uh, as a miner, we put back the, the ground and we, we reclamate and we do all things like this. And, and uh, there's seeding and we have forests again and, and such like that. But uh, I think the environment, on some of it, harsher chemicals and stuff that have just been dumped and putting in a man a plastic 55-gallon drum and sticking him inside of a mountain somewhere, uh, you know, someday that 
plastic's going to rot, corrode, whatever. Who knows? It might have a chemical reaction with the chemicals that are inside of it, and it might leach into the to the groundwater. Uh, I'd like to see those cleaned up. I'd like to see things uh, along that line. Uh, but I don't believe that they should that investment should come from the government or regulation hyper regulation or anything like that. I believe that the free market people get tired enough of it and they start spending money and in the right way in their investments. I think they'll come out better in that along that line. And uh, of course there's always gold mining. Um, there's investing in gold and and such like that because one of the things that people need to remember, economy is not formed by people pushing pieces of paper around. Economy has to be mined or grown. That's how we make money. And um, I like that answer. That's very good. I especially like the whole, the whole, I've been a big advocate for him for quite some time now, and I agree with, there's tons of great possibilities and especially with the ability to, to make those plastics kind of that'll just turn into to fertilizer like you were mentioning. I think that's one of my goals I'd love to see kind of happen into fruition and, and to sort of change the way that people feel the environment, which I feel like was kind of one of your, your points there is you wanted people to care enough to where they invested their own money and I think I think that's a great point. I think something that everybody should be focused on is helping to change sort of the the way that we all view waste and we all view the environment to kind of keep it all cleaned up and right. I definitely I definitely think that's a big factor and I also like that you know you, your point about the economy is very true in terms of metals and mining what do you think is the next big thing I know a lot of people are starting to realize the value of, of things like lithium or, or uh, some of the bastonite, the rare earth elements, and how useful they are in, in modern technology. And I feel like a lot of people kind of don't even really know about those unless you're sort of in the industry-related. How do you feel about those types of metals, and, and do you feel like anything like that would be a worthy investment? I do. I think things like that would be a, a very good uh, for example, I know several mining companies. I won't mention names, uh, not in for the commercialism of it, but uh, I think that there are plenty of mining companies that people just read the, the uh, trades papers on the mining industry. Uh, they would see that there are a lot of companies looking for those uh, rare earths, and uh, there are people that are looking for them and there are a lot of things that people don't know they they can be utilized for and the more they find the more they the people start seeing like i said before uh necessity is the mother of invention and it would be a good idea to start delving into companies and investing into companies that are looking for those type of things and I read an article the other day how they're taking uh, rare earth elements uh, out of uh, waste material from a mining industry. 
And uh, I thought, well, hey, that's pretty good, you know. And they're doing it with uh, bacteria. And, you know, I look at things from a holistic viewpoint rather than just a straight-on fact sometimes. Uh, there's a rock. Yes, I know that's the fact, but how did it get there? Or what is it made of? And, and other things. What can I do with it? And how can I take it apart and utilize it? I think people worry too much about uh, destruction rather than utilization. Uh, utilization of things, uh, recycling, aluminum cans, uh, such like that, glass bottles. We have that going on right now, but they don't realize that there's old waste dumps out there that could be reutilized and more brought out. And and uh, I think that there's so much out there that people don't see the forest for the trees, but I think that they should do due diligence in looking for an investment in any field, but see the possibilities and any company that wants to promote a product should show possibilities to their investors. You know, they just found this great big huge uh, lithium mine down in Argentina, and now they're they found more lithium in uh, Nevada and and such. And I think that there's elements out there that are waiting to be discovered. And that's what I think about investing. All right. That's very good knowledge there. I guess one more question for you here, sir. In terms of waste reduction and recycling, is there anything that you would, from your experiences, that you know that every your everyday person can sort of jump out and help? And, and what is something that you think we could all just do a little bit better that you've noticed that could make such a, a big impact if we all just do a little bit? I think what my father once told me, he says, you want to change the world? Change your mind first. And if we start working on habits like uh, you go to the shopping store and you get these plastic bags to carry your groceries home in, take those plastic bags and put some of them in your automobile. And and when you're driving around and you have something in your automobile, don't just chuck it out the window and put it in the plastic bag so that you can eventually recycle the whole deal and... uh, when you get home, you take that bag out, put a fresh one in there, and and uh, you recycle that way. And another way is if you happen to be out on a walk and you see some garbage, pick it up. Uh, don't wait for somebody else to pick it up. Don't say, well, somebody shouldn't have done that. Uh, yeah, they shouldn't have done that, but you're here. Pick it up. And it's not all about me. It's all about us. And uh, anything I can do that makes it cleaner, then I will do it. And that's what we have to do. We have to start changing people's customs and their minds and and, uh, their thoughts as to what they want to see in life. 
I love that answer. Yeah, recently myself have been trying to start up the what I like to call the 10-piece challenge where, you know, the goal is for everybody to go out and pick up 10 pieces of trash per day and just thinking about how many people, if we could get to do that, even if it's only a 1,000 and they all actually picked up 10 pieces of trash for 30 days, you know, you think all of a sudden now we're looking at 300,000 pieces of trash. And I think it's important to think about what you just said and, and the fact that it's not just about me, it's about us. And, and just that little bit of effort, if done by a lot of people, can make such a big impact. I, I really like that response. So I think that's a, a great note to kind of finish on and a great takeaway when it comes to, to keeping everything sort of more beautiful for this planet. And yes. I wanted to thank you, Wendell, for, for taking your time out here to kind of do this interview with me. I think you, you are a very wise man. Rock Talk, the podcast, is produced by Geowonks. Go to geowonks.com and join the community.